Hello and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Scott Dijkstra. Scott is CTO and co-founder of Space and Time, a Web3 native decentralized data platform. In this episode, Stefan and Scott discuss the difficulties of linking on-chain and on off-chain data, trueflation use cases, and what Space and Time offers the market as a decentralized data platform. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Super excited to be back. Another edition and really happy to be here today with Scott from Space and Time. So Scott and I met in Miami. It was in, in March this year. Yep. And I think sort of we just connected really well right at the, at the go. And it was at a Chainlink event, right? It was a Chainlink breakfast. And we are both strong partners with Chainlink. So I thought it'd be great for you to share with the community what you're up to and, um, and, and some of the explorations that you're seeing in deep blockchain and deep big data activities. So yeah, welcome Scott and, and maybe a bit of background on yourself rather than me doing it, I'll let you do it. And, uh, nice to meet you again. Sure. Yeah, appreciate that. Super happy yeah. to be here and uh, definitely excited to be, be chatting with the team. Um, yeah, things have been going really well. So, so my background, I'm the CTO and co-founder of Space and Time, which is a uh, enterprise scale decentralized data warehouse for Web3. Uh, joining, you know, large cluster compute, handling both on-chain and off-chain data and allowing our customers to run queries which join all their on-chain data with all their off-chain data in a very scalable, very fault tolerant, but truly decentralized way. Uh, kind of building, kind of bringing enterprise scale queries to Web3. And, and that's sort of, I think what, what was really interesting and, and, and why we sort of connected really well is what we're doing at Trueflation, right? We're aggregating a lot of data from real world price information, right? I'm trying to bring that on chain. How do we process that really fast on chain, right? At the moment, we're doing a lot of the processing off chain and then putting that on chain. How do we do more of that processing directly on chain and how can we do that? And I think that's where space and time is, is actually really trying to innovate and make some of that possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, just, um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, th I think, I think that'll be an interesting area. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. And so I think you're working, you've got, I mean, one of the challenges you had was really scaling up and finding, you know, engineers, um, and finding the right talent. How do you find given the sort of slight, you know, so certain people I've been talking to have found that the market has changed, you know, the, the crypto communities dropped, there's less faith, the tourists have left. Um, you know, and sort of uh, how do you feel and some of the projects have dropped or it's been too hard. Let's go. Let's rug and then leave the engineers on their own and, and go to the beach or something. How do you find has that changed for you? Have you seen a greater talent pool come onto the market and then make that? Um, yeah, with experience in blockchain, with experience in big data, that all of a sudden you actually now can can be. Uh, scale up and leverage this opportunity to further develop space and time at a, at a faster pace? I'm hoping so. Yeah, I think, I think the, the scaling <laughs> challenges have been interesting in the last month or two. Yeah. So um, we've been really focused uh, on 
all of our database engineers, not so much our smart contract and Web3 hiring. And I think now yeah. with, uh, and I say, I'm saying that we've been focused up until recently on those areas. And, and that's been a lot of hard work, just, you know, good recruiters going on LinkedIn recruiter and reaching out to talent and bring and kind of sourcing this exact people from, uh, you know, from my background in, in big data warehousing and, and my background in like, like enterprise analytics solutions and like finding people from the network. But now that there's a, a shift in kind of Web3, the, the, the few Web3 corporations that yeah. were recruiting heavily have just let a lot of people go or are, are now, you know, there's a lot of vacancies in the market. And that's a lot of great Web3 engineers that are now looking for a job. And I think you're positioned well. I'm positioned well. We're, in, we're, we're at a point where uh, we can leverage some of that talent on the market. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, sort of actually maybe, you know, we went right deep right away, but maybe stepping back a bit. And I think the way you explained to me what you're doing is, is really trying to bring at space and time, bring a sort of snowflake type experience on chain. Would you say that's a correct analogy? And if so, what is snowflake? Maybe for some of the audience that don't know snowflake, uh, maybe just sort of give a bit of background. What is so unique about them? Because they did a great, they had a great IPO, um, and so maybe just explain what that is and and how. Yeah, that I think it was the, the biggest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it was the biggest IPO yeah. of 2020. We are we are kind of describing space and time as a Web three native snowflake or snowflake for for the blockchain yeah. world, snowflake for the Web three world. The challenge in doing so is that we don't want to lock ourselves too much into the data warehousing only space because space and time is building. Um, a, a hybrid database and data warehouse. What Snowflake yeah. is, is a large-scale cloud-native data warehouse for, for the enterprise. They, they allow you to kind of scale your queries infinitely, run one query and pay for it, run a thousand concurrent queries that could, could process terabytes of data and pay for that. And so it's, it's, it's a run-your-own, pay-for-what-you-use effective kind of scaling solution for running as many queries as you need to against as much data as you need to. And, and we generally think about a data warehouse in, in the terabyte range, not the gigabyte range that we think of databases. Yeah. And, and we think about Snowflake only for analytics, right? For analytic jobs, OLAP, online analytic processing. Whereas in Web3, I'm seeing a huge need for both OLAP, online analytic processing, and OLTP, online transaction processing, very, very fast, low latency kind of uh, those quick queries that say, show me Scott's recent transactions on Polygon in 0.01 second versus like the big process terabytes of data and give me a result back on some analytic job in, in uh, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. So my point is in Web3, there's a need for both. And I think Snowflake yep. is is beautifully handling one of those areas in Web two, and we're trying to handle both. And 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 so you know we we've all heard of you know sort of projects like Arweave that are that are bringing data storage, right? So not necessarily real data warehousing, or and, and even the processing of that data. It's just retrieving and, and storing. And then you've got pro projects like you know maybe Filecoin that are trying to add an element of infrastructure on chain. How, how does, do you complement them? Do you work with them? Is, or, or how do you see that sort of map out against space and time? Yeah, space and time you could think of as a cache 
over a decentralized yeah. storage infrastructure like IPFS, you know, maybe someday Arweave or Filecoin, we're, we're, you know, talking to folks in, in, in both of those ecosystems and kind of figuring out a strategy of how we approach both of those areas as uh, yeah. others include things like storage or storage. Um, yeah. Yeah. So decentralized infrastructure is really interesting to us. It's not really an area that we want to be competing in because we believe there's going to be so many good players with so many good solutions for decentralized storage. We kind of want to build a composable cache that sits over them where we can pull in the hottest data sets or the most frequently accessed data relational tabular data from from ipfs based solutions like filecoin or arweave and then uh, have them cached in space and time for much faster access and so basically space and time sort of becomes chain agnostic if you will right i mean you leverage all the infrastructures that are out there and the different chains and support and support each one of those yeah i think chainlink has done a good this is a big nod to Chainlink. they've done a really good job of, yeah. of being chain agnostic and building like uh you know kind of refusing to build their own chain in favor of, of being a bridge between all major chains and a bridge between off-chain and on-chain data and i think we want to take a similar approach and that's not just chain yeah. agnostic that's also storage agnostic like we want to be a bridge between or not a bridge we want to be a data warehouse that that has capabilities to access to read and write data to ethereum polygon binance avalanche um you know you name it solana and, but also be agnostic on the on the storage side where we you know today we might yeah. run our own ipfs based secondary storage and tomorrow we might be using our weave and would you then also integrate into Web2 storage capabilities as well? So I can then switch between Web2 and Web3 and integrate between the two. Absolutely. Um, we're doing yeah. a lot of work on our engineering, on our R&D right now, on the Web2 side of things as well. I think that's the easiest area to tackle because uh, data warehousing on top of Web2 storage is is mature the the, the yeah. ability to push down processing to s3 on, on amazon or azure blob storage or google cloud storage or other databases that are federated like you know push down processing and read and write from postgres or something like i think that's a that's an area that's the easiest to integrate because those tools already exist what doesn't exist, already exist. Is, is the integration with web3 uh decentralized storage yeah. it's like this like yeah. the future yeah. is you as a customer should should put your data wherever you need to. Like if you have data sets that exist off chain somewhere in API feeds or in other databases or other enterprise data warehouses in the cloud, great. You should be able to pull those into space and time. If you have data that already exists in some IPFS-based decentralized storage, great. You should pull that into space and time and run queries against it. Finally, yeah. if you have data on chain, that, that to me is the most important. We should grab all of that, index yeah. it, and make that available. And then ultimately join all three. Join your off-chain web two data join your decentralized ipfs based stored data and join all of your on-chain transactions and on-chain transfer of value in one analytic process and give you a, a query engine to allow you to do all three and i think that's the interesting element right i think there's so much data on chain right all these explorers that present data that are very hard to query and then correlate between you know actual offline and, 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 and stored data with some of the transactional data to then correlate value 
with actual data sets that I have in my network. Um, so I think that's a super interesting area to sort of really build out on. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, curious, I mean, how, how we, is Trueflation yeah. thinking about it? How is Trueflation yeah, I mean, thinking we're, about we're, that? I, I'm really keen on getting much more pricing information and transactional data um, and identifying what is an inflation associated with on-chain transactional data, right? I mean, how do I capture that? At the moment, we're going to all these different sources, you know, from Zillow for real estate data, Trulia. So we're pulling them all from existing API feeds and then aggregating them and then looking at the historical data associated with pricing information. But if I have a piece of property and there's been a transaction with that, I can see all of the history associated with that piece of property and how often it's changed hand and what's the inflation over time been mm -hmm. with a specific individual piece of property or aggregate that in a neighborhood. And then I can then look at that zip code, what transactions have been like for the similar square foot area, right? How do I do that on chain? How do I identify, you know, this address has had 15 different transactions. What is in this address? What is associated? It's an NFT. Okay. I can then identify this NFT has changed hand 15 times. And then ultimately off the back of that, I can see the price appreciation or or depreciation associated with that transaction. How do I extract that? And we've been partnering with a couple of on-chain companies that have been taking the on-chain data <laughs> and then taking that off-chain and leveraging a space and time to find that, right? And ultimately, as soon as they take it off-chain, it has, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know what the right word is, but I mean, it's adulterated, right? I mean, it could be changed, it could be, Again, is it verified? Yeah. How do I verify that about that's it accurate like, and all of that? Right? Yeah, yeah. I think we 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 see that as an analytic black box, and yeah. uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with putting data off chain. Even space and time is off chain, right? Yeah. Um, I think what, where it gets interesting is providing transparency to the community around what you're doing off chain and what your analytics are, and building trusted, proven, cryptographically uh, guaranteed analytics off chain. Um, I'm really curious to know from your end, like. Uh, as you guys look at this inflation data and, and run some analytics off chain, what you're starting to see. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're definitely, I mean, we're seeing more and more, we're now aggregating, you know, some 10 million, we're capturing 10 million price points, um, items, a price point for 10 million items. And we're aggregating that from 40 different, um, aggregation service providers. Um, and we're getting the real time price information. So we're doing it in real time. Um, and we're seeing, we're now breaking it down. We're seeing there's a demand for subcategories. So they don't just want any more of the CPI index itself. They're wanting some of the subcategories. We had six, we're now extending it to 12. And so we're breaking it down all the time further and further. And we're getting more granular as the market wants more granular information. The other thing we're seeing is people want it more geographically specific. So how can I get information of what's inflation in Austin versus San Francisco, right? And is there a difference right. and how does that impact? And then what does that correlate to nationwide inflation sort of type things, right? Um, so there's more analytics that people want. Um, and then ultimately the demand is actually coming from TradFi, hedge funds, private equity firms, Wall Street, which I had totally not seen coming as much as I thought it was actually going to come from DeFi projects and smart contract projects and things like that.
So then um, one more quick follow-on question, just from yeah. my understanding, what use cases around both DeFi and TradFi does that open up? Like, I'm, I'm really curious to know how this new on-chain data around inflation is being used. A multiple ways. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're seeing it in, on synthetic assets. So how do I put pricing to synthetic assets? How do they deviate? Uh, we have online salary companies updating salary, uh, crypto salary based on inflation. Uh, we have uh, analytics, with the, you know, people trying to bet on it, obviously. So prediction markets trying to sort of build prediction around what inflation is going to be. Uh, which ultimately there's also going to be perpetuals that are going to be built off the back of this, right? Sort of long-term changes in terms of being able to have options open associated with treasury inflation protected securities that allow me to offset or make up on the rewards that I need to for real world, right. you know, protecting my real, real money, if you will, at a real, on real terms. So it's that's, it's that's it's awesome. been yeah it's been really interesting to see that and yeah just ultimately yeah different feeds different customer segments we've now got three different customer segments um, that we've identified and but for us it's really I, I I'm super I, I see a couple of challenges right so a lot of people are asking for us for on chain data they want the data on chain how often at the moment we're capturing it aggregating it and then putting it on chain once a day because. If we do it too often or in real time, whenever we get it, process it, it would and could become a bit more expensive. Um, and so ultimately, cost is a big driver in terms of why we're not putting it on chain as quick as we could. And so right. I'd love to see how we get more infrastructure, better tooling that's going to help us bring it on chain and then ultimately drive a community to engage with us in terms of how we optimize the algorithms associated with that data source for milk, for real estate, for, you know, other commodities possibly. I think the two, the two areas that will be really paramount from an infrastructure perspective is application development and how applications, and I mean specifically dApps, Web3 dApps, yeah. can, be yeah. built, can be built on top of that data and, and on top of the analytics around that data. And then the other area yeah. is connecting that directly to smart contracts and like how you can co connect that data to smart contracts in a trustless kind of um, cryptographically guaranteed or uh, tamper-proof exactly. way, knowing that if your smart contract, for example, if you, if you build a a derivatives market on yeah. inflation data or a predictions market on inflation data. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that market is all on chain. How do we know that the inflation data that's being, that's feeding that predictions market is accurate and guaranteed and, and tamper proof. And I think that's where the infrastructure will play a key piece from a DAP development standpoint. I'm really excited to see how DAP developers, you know, bring these, these new markets or these new use cases with both uh, trusted analytics, i.e. space and time and yeah. new data sets, i.e. trueflation, bring those yeah. to the users and bring those to the masses. Like how, how can applications be built? So like step one is first getting all the data into a usable organized format in a, in a database that's decentralized and trustless and where you can trust that the data came in from a place that we know and also the analytics against it, the computation is trusted. To get that into a smart contract so that dApps can be built on that smart contract and yeah. then three, get yeah. that in the hands of the users. That'll be interesting to watch. And so how do you view, I mean, you know, there are a whole set of tool sets out there for developers that work and build dApps, like they're working with Truffle Suite, with Morales, and 
for building smart contracts and the dApps themselves. How do you view space and time integrating with those? Is that something that you're focused on as well? Or you, yeah. Yeah, I think over time we want to provide more and more pre-built analytic services that are API driven okay. and not so much yep. SQL driven. <clears throat> Initially, yep. space and time is a SQL query engine. You can store data like any other database, like, like you would in Postgres, like you would in Snowflake. Yep. And you can run yeah. queries on top of that. And, and ultimately, those queries are proven that we have cryptographic guarantees against those queries. So you can actually provide the results to like a smart contract or a DAP. That's step one. Step two, though, is a, a whole set of, of REST API or GraphQL API driven services that actually um, power analytics inside of your DAP. So I'm not yeah. saying we're yeah. going down the Morales route of building a DAP development platform so much as we are building API driven analytic services for them to get access to these data sets. And then and then partners like Trueflation could actually build their own set of APIs on top of space and time where you can then provide a bunch of services to your customers where all the customer does is, is gives us a parameter. Like I want this type of data for this period of time. Like I want real estate data in this market. Like in, in the, I want real estate data in the Austin market over the last three years as, as parameters. And then we provide analytics back. Okay. Yeah, because we, that, that was just exactly which is a, topic a much different. That had. That, that, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's a much different use case than Morales. Whereas Morales is more, yeah. uh, you know, how do we get DAP developers up and running very quickly with like yeah. uh, just like simple show me oh, the wallet addresses involved in my app, yeah. you know, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah no, and that's it. But but coming back to your point, right? One of the big products we, we discussed today was exactly that, right? How do I do specific queries associated to the price of milk from these 15 sources um, uh, in these different markets um, and, and, and do a query like that and, and between this time and that time period? And then what is the price and what has the volume been, right? So we were then trying to figure out how do we display that? How do we, number one, provide a user experience where I can query that? <laughs> Um, and then number two, how do we display that? So it is actually, people can understand what you're trying to display. And so that's been sort of more on the UX sort of side. And then at the moment we're pulling it all from off-chain sources. So it's in an on-chain, it's in an off-site, you know, a, a web two database. Um, we're aggregating it on there and we're querying that, right? And then, so how, is that verifiable to somebody that is independent and wants to make sure it's accurate? There's no black box associated with that. And so having that on-chain is, is there's definitely something that people want to know it's on-chain and I can verify all of those price points just to make sure it's accurate and there's no scam associated with that data. Absolutely. And then you think yeah. about the data stack kind of moving up from infrastructure, like providing the actual data warehousing infrastructure to store that data and do trustless computation, trustless queries against that data. That's kind of the base level infrastructure. And then the data products themselves, like the actual data and who who's going to grab that data and who's going to build the analytics on top of it. And that that's a, a very lucrative market and not, and not just lucrative, but very important. Like it's going to be the, probably the most, the most, um, probably the most valuable market to the web three developer. And then on top of that, the apps themselves, like what apps can be built on that data on those, on that compute engine or that query engine that powers the, the, the queries against that data. 
So I'm always very fascinated to see as as companies kind of grow and expand and scale where they move, you know, up the stack, you know, from data product to application on that data product, or do you focus on bringing more and more data products and you leave it to the community, you leave it to the, the Trueflation ecosystem to build dApps yeah. on top of your data? Yeah. And that's, that's sort of the route that we've gone, right? So how do we get the community to build on top of, and that's partially why we did the Chainlink Hackathon, right? We, we sponsored the Chainlink Hackathon and we had 29 creative teams come together and build on top of Trueflation, which, and really creative ideas that, that we really want to foster and allow them to build on that, right? Um, what were some of your favorites? So, I mean, there was a prediction market, which was really interesting. Uh, you know, that, that to me was, was really the one favorite that I had, you know, it, and there were a whole bunch of other things, you know, I just submitted, uh, the team submitted uh, the responses. But to me, the other one was squared inflation, right? So how do I build, per, you know, options associated with inflation data? that allows me to, you know, hedge a bet. I mean, it ultimately becomes a lot down to betting uh, and what is inflation going to be and how do I make up inflation if I'm not going to get it from interest rates at a bank or a yield farm? How do I protect myself against, uh, my, how do I protect my purchasing power, basically? Uh, and those were the most interesting ones that I saw. Um, I have a background yeah, no, then, uh, in, in, yeah. in direct. I have a background in der derivatives trading prior to spending about eight years at Teradata building data warehouses for the Fortune 500. I was building yeah. data warehouses for for hedge funds doing derivatives trading. And we built like, you know, about a 60, 60 terabyte, six zero, uh, 60 terabyte data warehouse for derivatives data against the stock market, like wow. calculating yep. the implied volatility of every single strike, of every single expiration, of every single security uh, in real time, as the prices of those securities changed, we have this massive streaming data set coming in where we're calculating the applied volatility. And you, one of the parameters or one of the model inputs for calculating IV is inflation, like the risk-free rate. And and yeah. it's it's really interesting, like to see you really can't even begin to calculate the volatility of a of a security. And soon that will be we can think about uh, you know crypto as the replacement for that. We'll just say that we'll say asset. Calculating the yep. volatility and the implied volatility of, of an asset in any kind of derivatives market will always require inflation rates. Uh, so it's not just the, um, I guess, the cornerstone of like understanding what's happening macroeconomically in the world, but it's also going to be a, a useful parameter for us to do any kind of options, derivatives, secondary markets, betting, whatever it may be. Uh, inflation's vital for doing that. And the, the point of me bringing this up is, there's this infrastructure stack where we are getting streaming or real time or data feeds from the real world, from outside sources. Sure. We are doing some kind of calculation or some type of, uh, we'll call it ETL, extract, transform, load, or extract, compute, and load, or extract, calculate, load. And what we load that into, in your case, could be a smart contract directly. It could be an off-chain but trustless decentralized database like space and time. Or in the short term, it could just be any database just to get you started to, to, to run calculations and do kind of some analytics before that data is provided back on chain. And I think that 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 entire end to end stack of grabbing data from the real world, running some calculations or some compute on it, storing it in a target, whether that's on chain or an off chain, but trustless 
you know, decentralized data warehouse, and then providing that ultimately to smart contracts. That end-to-end -end process will get more and more mature as both the infrastructure yeah. for capturing data gets more mature and yeah. products like yours get better data. I think what we found, one of the challenges that we've had is, you know, inflation data, I mean, the price of your your milk or or your your phone or your your phone bill or whatever doesn't change that much it's not highly volatile right i mean it changes over a monthly basis so how can we get more granular so that we can see more volatility in an, a change of pricing information right um and and what categories have the highest volatility and and express the biggest interest um out there and 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 that's sort of where we've been looking at. And, and that would then be really interesting to a lot of, um, yeah, I suppose the options and derivative products that are out there because they love volatility, right? I mean, the more volatile it is, the more data I need in order to aggregate it. But on the same side, there's a whole category of customers that are spending a lot of money to try and evaluate how specific businesses are performing and how does inflation influence that specific business, right? So if the gas price goes up, what does that mean for your Netflix subscription? You still love to travel. You still have to go and drive back and forth to work. Netflix content may be coming down. Do I pull my subscription from Netflix? And that gives me an extra couple of miles a month, you know, tens of miles a month in, 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 <laughs> in driving back and forth. I don't know, but that those are sort of the analytics that people want to start doing. And how do we find those correlations? And that's sort of what um, I think is where I'm looking to have the fun bit, you know, sort of you saw that um, when kids stopped smoke, when, when smoking started to become untrendy, or non-trendy, nobody starts, the chocolate consumption would go up, right? So people would have candy more because they weren't smoking anymore, right? And so they had surplus income or amount of money, and then they would spend that on alternatives, and that happened to be chocolate. Or maybe now it's coffee because chocolate's also bad, too much sugar. Or, you know, I don't know, you know, so all of those correlations and how does inflation influence each one of those, it's going to be interesting as we go into an inflationary market. I mean, we're already in there. So Trueflation says us it's 12%, 11.8%. So, um, yeah. And, are, and you saying, sort of, are you I, seeing changes month to month? Does, does the March versus April versus May versus June versus July numbers, or is that, is that, a, is that going from 12 to 12.2 or is that, or is that bigger, bigger changes? No, we're seeing changes month to month and we're seeing changes in fact, week to week. Um, yeah, so we're seeing, and, and in fact, you can actually see it day to day, but I mean, the, the changes are then 0.1 or a half a percentage point or something. So it's not, it's marginal, right? But, but in mm -hmm. the end, you know, it, it, you still see regular changes in prices because in aggregate across so many different items from so many different fields across the country, it's, it's quite a, a, a broad range. Absolutely. I, I mean, I can also yeah. see how this affects if this really affects stable coins as well. So we're, you know, we're doing a lot of analytics around uh, different different stable coins and kind of the correlation between pegged assets and non yep. you know, regular fungible tokens. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how if, if we can treat the market like a foreign exchange market 
in that we yep. have in that assets are traded on chain tokens are traded on chain as yep. asset pairs in liquidity pools and yep. if we treat that like the foreign exchange market and do similar analytics we're ultimately looking at at risk-free rates and we're looking at inflation across uh, our own pegged assets as well like i think i think the you know the as the market as the macroeconomic off-chain market changes we can start to see every little effect wave through the token the tokenomics that we're also uh, eyeing on chain and so that's one thing that we've been looking at and we've been talking to so in my view is you know in a way bitcoin has tackled inflation right i mean they they've got a finite uh, number of supply it goes up in price based on demand right so you know that um, stable coins provided, you know, addressed volatility, right? So it would provide a certain level of stability. However, it was still pegged to the US dollar. And so one belief that we've really adopted is this sort of flat coin concept, right? Where here's a basket of items and we are going to peg towards this basket of items. And, you know, there are companies like Frax doing in that direction, Sparax, Vault, and then Nuon, right? So we've got a number of different providers that are tacking it to BLS, but that's still according to the U.S. dollar and the U.S. pricing information. So we've tried to sort of, hey, use Trueflation as the source of that basket, right? And it can vary and you can get much more detailed. You can choose the basket and you can just have that output. And you peg it to that. And that's going to be really interesting because then you'll see a bifurcation between, you know, the national currency and, and what the actual basket of goods is. And if you think about it, money was invented to actually facilitate trade. It was to allow for an exchange of goods and services and simplify that. And we've gone away from that, in my view, it's become complicated to deal with money today with a bank. I much prefer to send you a USDT way faster at any given time over having to log into my bank account, uh, justify why I'm paying you. It's over $1,000 or $10,000. I need to give a whole KYC as to who's receiving it for a, a, a good and service that I feel you deserve. I want, uh, you deserve money for that. I want that's good. Those goods or those services. And, why shouldn't we be able to exchange super easily? Yep. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, I think there's definitely going to be more and more around how do we track inflation on chain and in the tokenomics that we have out there. Um, and that's you, where I think, are, are you having, are you getting a lot of data from a, from a wide variety of different sources? And are you, um, having trouble or I shouldn't say having trouble. Are you uh, spending a lot of engineering effort to ETL extract, transform and load this data into whatever kind of data sources that you are, sorry, I should say targets that you're targeting, like whether it's a smart contract directly, like, like putting that data directly on chain or putting that data in some off chain database as a landing zone, as a staging zone before it goes back on chain getting all these different disparate data sets. I mean, you keep talking about milk as a fun example, right? Milk versus gas versus home equity, you know, the, the kind of the Zillow real estate versus yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fed number, fed numbers versus jobs, like, like unemployment, like you're grabbing all this different data. Uh, you know, are you, how are you kind of munging all that into a data warehouse? 
That is that is the challenge. So we are spending a lot of, I think you call it ETL. We're definitely spending a lot of time on that because we get in different formats. We get in different time intervals. Um, and then we need to align them and, and make sure that they're correlated with each other and they make sense. Um, and, and yeah, so we've got, I mean, four dedicated engineers that spend just their whole time figuring that out. Not anything to do with the architecture itself. It's just how do I process all of this data? How do I categorize them? And it gets even granular, right? I mean, um, we have the ability at the moment to extract price, not just for milk. It's semi-skimmed milk, right? It's almond milk. It's oat milk, right? So it's like all of a sudden in that category, you have a whole bunch of subcategories. Um, but we have the advantage that there's been a lot of learning done in that area as well. And a lot of that has been added into barcodes, uh, a lot of product informations into barcodes, and the retail outlets have categorized a lot of these already. So how do we extract from those sources and map those into our categories so that then we can make sure that the price of milk doesn't go into the price of real estate, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I think the next um, step then is, then how, how do you, you know, proven data sets? Like, how do you think about proving that the data you're grabbing from your source has been grabbed in a in an accurate way or a consensus-driven way or a trusted way where we know that we're grabbing reliable data from reliable sources, maybe even redundantly from multiple sources, that kind of the chain link approach to grabbing off-chain data feeds. Yeah. Getting that into one kind of secured or tamper-proof data warehouse and then building trustless analytics on top of that or, or, or proof-driven cryptographically guaranteed tamper-proof analytics so that when we actually provide the analytics to a smart contract to build secondary markets on chain, to build prediction markets on chain, to build any kind of DAP that allows people to make any kind of transfer of value against that data, how do we do yeah. so in a trustless or decentralized way, I think is an area that, that you and I both are really interested in, in kind yeah. of iterating through and like figure out what the next steps are for, for that kind of data product. Yeah, and how do we build on that? How do we, you know, exchange learnings associated with having identified solutions or problems to then maybe you've addressed one, I've addressed something else, and then we can then relay those and, and move as a community forward to bring better products to market that are going to be 10x better than what I'm experiencing in the world today. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think as a, as a developer, yeah. you, you you have to build on that trustless data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, you know, I, I think there's so much more here, and I think you know, you know, I know we're we're coming into the end of our time, so I'm just really conscious that I think you know we're on a journey in terms of what we're doing and what we're trying to identify and how we're doing it. We're in it in the middle of a big transformation. Um, as everything shifts more on tribe, gets more on, on chain, gets more trustless, and we um, have the appropriate tooling to make that possible. You know, you go back seven years ago or, or five years ago, there were no tools. I mean, the There's tools nothing. were just emerging, right? There was yep. nothing there. And this is such a nascent industry. And there is more, there is so much data on chain that hasn't yet been extracted properly, right? And uh, how and what, and it's really abstract. You really need to have a very three-dimensional mind in order to figure out how to abstract something like that 
and then analyze it and provide an interpretation of what that means from an economic standpoint to the different individuals, right? Number one in the financial market, number one in a realtor market, and number one in, in, in building products and solutions market, right? So um, I think what Space and Time is doing is, is really cool. And look, I really look forward to coming back in, in, in a couple of months or a year's time and, and then seeing how much further have we come, right? And, and where are we today? And how is space and time and trueflation really working together in a solution on, on chain? Yeah. 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 It's going to be exciting. Um, and, and I'll, I'll finish by saying it's, it's yeah. a, it's very much a, uh, build it and they will come kind of approach. And I think Chainlink paved the yeah. way. Chainlink probably yeah. in the early days of people using oracles, it was very much a build it and they will like, he, you know, folks like Sergey at Chainlink were thinking a little ahead and thinking, okay, at some point, this infrastructure is going to be needed to enable all these new use cases that people haven't even thought of yet. And both space and time and trueflation are in the same area. Like inflation data will become so vital and, and infrastructure to manage massive volumes of data coming in from both the blockchain and the real world and joining that together will become vital. So we build this infrastructure and we wait for all the exciting new use cases to be built on top of it. And yeah. I'm excited to see what, what our partnership together will mean. Yeah. And, and, you know, what can we do or what can we pro help promote and to get creative people to build on top of space and time and work with space and time? I mean, where can they follow you? What, you know, do they go, what's the, the website? What's the best channel to sort of interact and follow yeah, absolutely. the performance of space and time? Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, space yeah. and time DB at space and time DB on Twitter, space and time yeah. .io is our website. It's a beautiful, fun, kind of interactive website if you want to go check it out and see something a little off the beaten path, a little more creative. Uh, so definitely take a look at spaceandtime.io. This was Stefan Roost and Scott Dijkstra. You can follow Scott on Twitter at ChiefBuilder, that's C-H-I-E-F-B-U-I-D-L, and space and time at space and time db that's s p a c e a n d t i m e d b you can also follow stefan on twitter at srust99 that's s r u s t 99 and you can find the super excited with stefan roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on youtube on the stefan roost channel thank you for listening <laughs>